I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Tomorrow is Halloween. Eve. No, actually, uh, is it not well, the 29th well, today? No, yeah, it, uh, the people are listening to this on on a Friday. Oh, right, 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 right. right. Oh, okay. Tomorrow. Oh, sorry. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I forgot we're in the time capsule. I forgot. I forgot about the time capsule. Time's a tricky yep, bitch. Uh, it is Halloween bad. tomorrow, and um, and I know I don't know. I don't know. I don't actually know for sure. But I have a feeling that at least here in the Atlantic bubble, for people who don't know, we live in basically the safest place on the planet right now here in Atlantic Canada. Ooh, I know that a lot tasty. of I know a lot of kids are actually going to be trick or treating here in uh, in Halifax and the surrounding areas. Um, and I also know that there's probably going to be people in the U.S. who are. Probably just trick or treating anyway. Trick or treating, yeah. Um, <laughs> trick or treating is going to be happening. Um, but it was, it was, it made me think about the the you know. Um, have you guys heard? You guys have like every year you kind of hear of like in the potentially in the news something's going to come out of like oh, a kid a kid bit into their candy apple and it was full of razor blades and they cut the inside of the mouth. That's that does happen. Yeah. I remember that happening when I was a kid. Yeah, so that is actually, um, I, I did some digging into that. Uh, and do you guys want to know what I learned? It's a big I, myth. Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a pretty big myth. It's, it's actually it's a big myth like it's, it's never myth. happened. Yeah, listen to this. So it is a, it is a, it is, poison candy is a, is largely an urban, urban legend. Um, it's this urban legend that malevolent strangers hide poisons or sharp objects, objects like razor blades and stuff in, in kids' candy, like needles and razor blades and broken glass. Broken glass, that's a... Um, yeah. And so the idea is like... like they didn't know, just get a razor blade. Like, they they broke some glass yeah, and yeah. then put it in the candy, right? Yeah, yeah. they took out... They well, took you out. have to do something with your broken glass. That's what I do when yeah. I break a jar or a glass. Yeah. I just take yeah. out candy Recycling. and I'm like, well... That's it. Uh, here it goes to the local children for their Halloween surprise. Yeah, that, that's right. If yeah. you have... Yeah, if, you're, if your light bulbs blow out, you just put them on the ground. Uh, and if you're on putting them, broken and then, glass and then just in. And then sprinkle then, it into the Smarties. Or actually, the USB. And they're probably the also... They're probably also also getting like <clears throat> a little bit of their own blood in it too, because it's really hard to handle uh, like a large oh, volume of, of broken glass mm-hmm. without cutting yourself. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I mean, like then, so, you don't, then you don't know what you're spreading. So this urban me- urban legend, this myth that uh, that you know people these evil people are out there putting these sorts of things in uh, in children's candy to harm them, especially around Halloween and trick or treating. Uh, these stories serve as modern cautionary tales to children and parents 
and repeat to themes that are common in urban legends, danger to children and uh, contamination of food, which I guess, I guess that's a common theme. That's in an urban, urban legend. legend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dude, dude, so, dude, 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 I just want to say, ah, I just want to say that I remember, <laughs> so I just quickly Googled because I remember hearing the story from my parents of razor blades and candy. November 1st, 2016, in Halifax, razor blades found in Halloween candy of two trick-or-treaters say police. All right. Yeah, dude. I remember somebody getting arrested when I was really young right. in right. Halifax. This is good. This, this is good. This is good that you're giving me this because this is going to go somewhere. This is going to go somewhere. So <laughs> there's uh, a picture of the razor blade in the Kit Kat bar. It's fun. No, no cases. No cases of strangers killing or permanently injuring children this way has ever been proven. Commonly, the story appears in the media when a young child dies suddenly after Halloween. So this is a little bit outside of what we're talking about, but uh, medical investigations into those actual cases of death have always shown that these children did not die from eating candy given to them by strangers. However, in rare cases, adult family members, this is, this is pretty interesting. In rare cases, adult family members have spread this story in an effort to cover up murder or accidental deaths. In other incidents, a child who Whoa. has been told about poison candy places a dangerous object or substance in a pile of candy and presents that it was the work of a stranger. This behavior is called copycat effect. Folklorists, scholars, and law enforcement experts say that the story that strangers put poison in the candy and give, it, give that candy to, to trick-or-treating children has been thoroughly debunked. So <laughs> that story that you're talking about in the media, in the, in the, 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 the fake news leftist uh, uh, media um, <laughs> oh, is you know is uh, is pro- is probably it's probably just uh, some crazy parent that was like hey let's let's uh, okay let's try to murder okay. let's try to mur- see okay. that's it let's try to murder our children this well, is it's it. funny listen because this. listen listen it's you, funny you, because they, it said they, razor blades in two in two trick or treaters bags but then you find out in the article that they were brother and sister so it <laughs> yeah. probably was their parents yes man that's what I'm saying <laughs> that's what I'm saying actually though. <laughs> Okay. That makes okay. so much sense. But because it's this always the definitely person happened. you know. Mm-hmm. But this <laughs> has definitely ahead. happened because if you think of, I mean, think of, I mean, Jerry, you're a, you're into, uh, uh, you're into like, I'm into all sorts of ins and outs stuff. of the ins and outs of like serial killers and all the yes. things that they've done. Yes, I, I mean, and, and like everything under the sun that you can think of, yeah. somebody has tried to hurt somebody in that yes, way. Yes, 100%. I think it's insane to think. That no one in the history of putting candy in kids' bags, no one has tried to hurt a kid that way. Okay, so that's not what this is saying. That's not that's not what I and that's not what I was saying. What I'm saying is that it is it is not um, it, a, a, a child has never been killed or seriously <clears throat> injured, according to again. This is this is all coming from a very highly touted source this is wikipedia okay so this is coming from you know it, it doesn't donate it does, to wikipedia it every doesn't year. get any more them. yeah it doesn't get any more reputable than this it's so, too legit but uh but here let, let me go let me go through let me go too through a little bit more of the history so that maybe you have a better understanding so uh claims that candy was poisoned or adult uh, adulterated gained general credence during the industrial revolution so we, i mean we, you know what, let's not go that far back let's go back to uh the development of modern candy tempering tampering myth this is this is actually fucking fascinating and i actually heard this on your uh on uh last podcast on the left last week and i thought this was really fascinating so there have been events where where candy 
has been tampered with, okay, in the past, but it's but it but it hasn't it hasn't actually led to serious injury or death. However, in 1959, this is fucking fascinating. A California dentist, okay, a oh. dentist, a dentist, William Shane, gave candy-coated laxative pills to trick-or-treaters. He was charged with outrage of Ooh. public decency and unlawful dispensing of drugs. Now, interesting that a dentist did this because you know that motherfucker is really trying to just help because he's going, yeah. he's, he's, he's a like, good dentist. He's the dentist that's going, sugar. kids, do not eat candy. It's bad for your teeth. I don't want you coming through my doors. If he was a dentist who was, who was trying to game the system and actually mm-hmm. didn't give a shit about children, he would have been giving <clears throat> extra candy to those kids. So really, right. mm-hmm. this dentist, he was, I mean, really, he was trying he to... Should have given, he should have given no toothbrushes. Have you got, have you guys gotten uh, a toothbrush Ooh. trick or treating? Dude, I always I always <laughs> yeah. appreciate a toothbrush. I'd be so pissed. Really? I'm yeah. always I would throw on the, I'm always to the ground. I'm always <laughs> on the verge of needing a new toothbrush. Yeah. I mean, you know it's wild it's, though. It's an essential it's an essential item. I, I'll, I'll I tell you, I'll tell you something that I heard is going that something that I heard I just I read I can't remember where I saw this. It was in a can't remember what news source it was. It was like one of the one of the top um one of the top ones that that um you know always tells the truth it was um that there's Fox going News. to be that there's going to be there's a yeah tell the truth all the time <laughs> there's a thing going around there's a thing going around um a story going around where um where there's going to be they they think that there's in certain parts of the united states um um specifically uh specifically a lot of um a lot of blue blue states mm. um that there's going to be um a, a certain substance that gets slipped into certain candies in the in the manufacturing allegedly um that will make um that will make uh, voters uh, commit mass mail in mail in ballot voter fraud did you hear that on the joe rogan episode with alex jones yeah, I think Alex. Yeah, I think it was. I think Alex Jones said that he's, he said something like. First, he said something about frogs being gay and something in the water, and then yeah. he was like, and then there's going to be something in the candy oh that God. makes people commit uh, voter fraud. Um, um, and it's supposed, supposed to be all in blue states, and uh, I just and wanna, so everybody should watch out for that since Halloween is obviously. Three I want to get off that topic for a second and go back to the razor blades and candy. Okay. I'm just curious, like how. It it seemed like, and I know that we like this is your whole kind of point of the story, Jared. But like, it seems like it seemed like as a kid that the odds were like fifty fifty when you went out trick or treating that you'd get a razor blade in your candy. Like the story was so commonly spread. Wow, the story I did was not. so com- But like, I, I didn't it, feel yes, that way, dude. Those fifty are crazy fifty. Likely. Likely. Did did you not feel like when you went trick or treating? Okay, were you were you told were you told by your parents? Yes, I'm saying it seemed extreme. That was my point by using Brian, that hyperbolic you have a statistic. Twin brother, so you're saying that with that stat, one of the two of you is coming home, dude. Full dude, of every Halloween, razor blade it, it filled candy. It seemed that way. It seemed that way. It seemed that way because you were told like multiple times during Halloween, like watch out for you know watch out when you're trick or treating for the razor blade candy because like. It's almost definitely going to be in your in your pillowcase. Yeah. Didn't it seem that way? Were Were you guys told about razor blades and candy? Um, I mean, my I parents, heard of it. I don't know parents. where I heard of it though. I don't know no. if it was my parents or if it was like something I saw on the news or well, apparently not. I didn't. Apparently, I didn't see it on the news. So mm. I don't know. It came up somewhere. <laughs> well, I mean, we also I, came up. We also came up in like in the in the just post satanic panic 
era. You know what I mean? Like we came up in a time where there was legitimate, like, like legitimate fear across North America that there were satanic cults kidnapping and murdering children left, right, and center. And like, that was, that was like an, that was an actual real. Blissfully unaware. You don't, you don't know about the satanic panic? Nope. Oh dude, you gotta, you gotta look at either. Are you guys fucking what? kidding me? What? No. It was a huge well, was thing. Okay, look like at look 80s. at look at you two. Look at you two up in your two top boxes, just looking wow. down on Brian. And I. <laughs> anyway, like the, a bunch the, of purists. The whole point of this. The whole point of this. Uh, the whole point of this uh, piece. I'm googling about, it. Uh, uh, what googling? Give it a gook. panic, dude. Give it a gook. Dude, uh, that's a f- sep- completely separate podcast slash episode. Um, what I wanted. To, what I was trying to get to was that. Um, uh, kids, if you are going trick or treating this year, have fun. You don't have a whole lot to worry about. Uh, however, I am curious now that now that especially like across most of Can- uh, across Canada, but like especially here in in um, in Nova Scotia, where you can like go to the NSLC and buy a bunch of weed candy. I mm. wonder what the chances are of that becoming an issue. Um, and can we can we drum up a lot of panic amongst children and parents alike right, surrounding right, right. their kids getting greened out this this Halloween? Yeah, this be a bunch of. Kids I mean, peaking. should we? Yes, should we drum up a, a yes. bunch of panic? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Do you think this will be good for our our um, our, our reputation with CBC? Uh, yes, I, think I don't think it, it could be. hurt. <laughs> I feel like it, yeah. I think that's the best outcome that can happen this Halloween on this year. Yeah. You know. <sighs> God. Um but yeah, anyway, there's not there's nothing to worry about kids. Uh go have fun, trick or treat and uh you know, break a pumpkin or two, you know, egg 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 a car or two. 100%. Uh don't do it yeah. to my fucking house. Do not do not come here and do it to my house, but do it to yeah. all the other houses for sure. I mean, if you come here. You know it's really funny. For, looking for I, an ass I have to say Something that must be really funny as like a cashier, either at a grocery store or like corner store, when like a 16 year old kid comes up to buy a carton of eggs, it's like, especially at like eight o'clock at night, like, oh, you're just really craving an omelet right now, little kid, or are those eggs going to end up on somebody's doorstep? Yeah. 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 Yeah, And a bunch of toilet paper. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's like if someone should, like someone washing a bunch of eggs and have diarrhea. We should ban eggs from uh, being sold to kids after uh, 4 p.m. Well, actually, we had a Patreon hangout. We had a Patreon hangout recently. We played uh, spooky trivia that was put together by Lauren. And one of the questions on the trivia with our patrons that we played this game with uh, one of our Wednesday night hangouts was what is a what is a party item that was banned in Los Angeles for the night? On Halloween nights or something like that, right? It was like, uh, what yeah. and and basically it, it, ended up, it ended up being silly string. Dude, this right, is really right, funny. Right. If you if you have imagined something ridiculous happening and you Google it, it always has happened. Um, always, Sunday, dude. October seventeenth, two thousand four. Uh, this is a BBC News article: Halloween egg sale banned for youths. <laughs> Supermarket giant Asda has banned teenagers from buying oh, eggs, <laughs> traditionally used as quote unquote. Trick or treat missiles. 
(laughs) Listen, if you want to get serious about fucking up someone's house, what you do is you take like some of the lollipops that you get, you suck on them for a bit, and then you stick them on people's windows. Mm. Oh, that's actually that's that's a dude. That's a that's a four-year-old girl's thought right there. I wouldn't. I would Mm. never get that sinister. I, I don't know. I've ne- I've never been a fourteen-year-old girl. I went straight from thirteen to fifteen. I skipped that horrible year of life. But you were never that person. It's, it's very innocuous because you're already walking around with lollipops half the time in your bag anyway. Just saying. For all See, we used to buy uh, we bought we Oops. bought fart bombs and uh, oh, fart bombs and, and took them and and we we would pop them in jack o' lanterns. And so there would just be the stinky stink outside of somebody's house yeah. while they continued to open the door for trick or treaters. Dude, we pretty, did bad things with fire bombs when we were pretty kids. devious, I think. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> hey, uh, it's fun to do bad things. It is, and, and actually, that's a great things. that's a great segue into this next piece that I came across that I thought you guys would find kind of interesting. So, uh, this are you guys familiar with the antisocial traits? Like, what what antisocial traits would <laughs> would consist of? Uh, perhaps uh, using uh, so- abusing soundboards. I mean, that's, that is one, uh, that is one antisocial trait. Yes. And I was doing that while, uh, before the recording. Uh, but I, I read this, I read this article, but I don't know. (laughs) I I see. I, when I think of antisocial, I think of like, I think of like, I think of like passivity and shying away from things, but so this is a little bit different. This is a little bit different. Yeah. So, so antisocial, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it from the perspective of, uh, of like antisocial personality disorder. Right. Um, uh, antisocial personality disorder, sometimes called sociopathy. So, you know, a sociopath is someone who has, who, who shows a lot of antisocial traits, uh, is oh. a mental disorder in which a person consistently shows no regard for right and wrong and ignores the rights and feelings of others. People with antisocial personality disorder tend to antagonize, manipulate, or treat others harshly or with callous indifference. They show no guilt or remorse for their behavior. <clears throat> individuals with anti-social, antisocial personality disorder often violate the law, becoming criminals. They may lie, behave violently or impulsively, and have problems with drug and alcohol use. Because of these characteristics, people with this disorder typically can't fulfill respons- responsibilities related to family, work, or school. So that's like, that's like antisocial personality dis- disorder. That's kind of like the... Uh, anti-so- having antisocial traits does not necessarily mean that you have antisocial... Uh, uh, personality disorder, but right. <clears throat> someone who typically shows a lot of antisocial tr- behaviors can lean into and 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 maybe go down the road of it's kind of like ending up becoming same, a sociopath. Like with basically. any with any like mental illness <clears throat> spectrum, like yeah. it, there's a point where you get to where it's a disorder, but also yeah. every human experience comes with some like level of emotions that That's trend right. towards that That's they just right. don't ever yeah. reach the problem where they become a disorder. So. Like, like experiencing feeling sad or depressed, but not actually being depressed or in a depression. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is, uh, this is coming from the independent. Um, I do not have, uh, the author here, but you can go check it out. Uh, independent.co.uk. Um, <clears throat> scientists in Brazil have linked resistance to COVID-19 safety measures, such as wearing masks with antisocial personality traits. Their study was the first of its kind in Latin America and surveyed over 1,500 people aged 18 to 73. Using a questionnaire, the scientists sought to identify the participants' active 
resonance, their impulse to act on feelings stirred by another person, and asked a series of personality questions about how well certain statements represented their behavior on a scale. The survey also asked about compliance with COVID-19 containment measures over time, such as mask wear. When profiles were analyzed, two were identified. An antisocial pattern profile, where people were resistant to COVID-19 safety measures, and an empathy pattern profile who were compliant. The antisocial profile was linked to higher scores in the personality questions related to callousness, deceitfulness, hostility, impulsivity, irresponsibility, manipulativeness, and risk-taking. Antisocial traits, which the study notes, are typically present in people diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, which is what we talked about earlier. This group also had lower scores in effective resonance. The empathy pattern profile showed higher scores in effective resonance and lower scores in the traits associated with ASPD, uh, antisocial personality disorder. It's, it's a, it, that's a, bit, it's a, lot, a lot of words. Uh, the team who conducted the study said they hoped the findings would help to persuade health officials to do more to educate people and to influence their policies. I thought that was really, really fucking interesting because when we, you know, we spoke to healthcare professionals and people who work within um, health, like, health officials who work in that, in that regard and their concerns over... Um, you know, trust in our health officials and trust in our, our uh, the, the people who are, you know, are like, <clears throat> like Daddy Strang, the people out there who either trust Daddy Strang or think that he's full of shit. <clears throat> Quote, through screenings that-, that demonstrate an elevation in these APS, AP, ASPD traits, interventions can be carried out aiming a greater, at greater awareness and consequent compliance with containment measures, the team explained. Um, what were you going to say there, Lauren? I was just going to say that that uh, that makes a lot of sense because the parts of the world and of Canada where messaging to educate people about COVID has focused more on what you can about like where it's a communal message. Like how can we protect our community? How can we help each other when it's more focused on that kind of messaging? It's more successful. Um, Rates of COVID are are lower when more successful because like more are saying. Because more people are going to listen who are more empathetic, who connect with the message of helping your community rather than these people with the anti-social personality traits. Because like it, it seems like there should be both type of types of messaging because like you might not need to put as much energy into me- messaging towards the more empathetic person because they already understand. But you, maybe right. it's better to invest in actually trying to shift the... Um, and maybe maybe you can. Maybe it's futile to try to do that. Maybe because of their antisocial personality traits, they just actually don't care about it. Or the messaging would have to be different to actually make an impact. Like, hey, hey, you narcissistic asshole, take care of yourself. Wear a mask, mask because you don't want COVID because you might yeah. lose the only life you have. Like, do you think that would be more effective? I think we should record that and send that out <laughs> to the appropriate. Isolate it. Appropriate, uh, Isolate it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, I, I, I think that's, I think that's an interesting thought, Brian, but I also think that it's like, <clears throat> you know, we find ourselves in such unique times that, um, that like, you know, a, a situation or a scenario that none of us have expected to find ourselves in. And because of the stress, because of the intensity of it all, um, perhaps that it's it's 
it's not it's perhaps it's not so black and white in that it's like oh there's a there here's a group of people that have always showed anti-personality traits and here's a group of people that always haven't i think it's like mm. i think it's like oh all of a sudden we're we're like we're all going through a, a fucking traumatic event and mm. everyone's reacting to it differently and oh here's like a here's a here's a swath of the population where in this fight or flight state all of a sudden now they're starting to show these traits that are linked to antisocial personality disorder. Um, something that, you know, we wouldn't have fucking known un- until we've all gone through this like really traumatic event but, together. But I kind of have, a, have- the, the problem. The problem I have with this study is that um, like it, it says that the, the antisocial profile was linked to higher scores in the personality questions related to callousness, deceitfulness, hostility, impulsivity. Like how did they, how did they, I'm really curious how they asked those questions and how they got people to self-identify as being more callous or more deceitful. Um, it, I I, I'm just really curious to see how they, test. how they would. Yeah. Right. Right. But like, how yeah. do you, I, I'm curious to know how they measured those things. I think they, I think they wrote it in the, is, in the article. They said they, that they, they laid out questions where like, where they would say like in this situation, how would you respond to this? Um, but how like, would you respond but, to this? And like multiple choice. And then they aggregate those answers and say, like, this points to whatever it points to. I am curious though, like, because if somebody is deceitful and that's part of their character trait, how do you know they're going to be honest on a survey about their personality? Well, I, I can know, actually man, tell you, what, I can tell you right here, Brian, here's the, here's the abstract <laughs> from the actual study. <laughs> here's the abstract. Uh, this study investigated the relationships between antisocial traits and compliance with COVID-19 containment measures. The sample consisted of 1,578 Brazilians, adult, or sorry, Brazilian adults aged 18 to 73 years, who answered facets from the PID-5, the effective resonance factor of the ACME, and a questionnaire about compliance with containment measures. So um, I said a bunch of stuff there. I don't know what the fuck any of that means. You don't know that's, that is. That's your, th- that's your fucking I think- answer. So... <laughs> There you go. I think I think ultimately I think it's ultimately the most, the most important part of this is is recognizing that this is correlation and not causation and that it is a link that can possibly be associated with the uh, less adherence to social distancing and proto- and and safety health protocols and things like that. Nope. But there are a bunch of a bunch of other factors. And if I had to speculate, <laughs> I would probably say that the culture that that exists in a country probably has the biggest influence on why people uh, react to the way that governments speak to them. I, I just well, it's I, like li- it's I, like liberal people are more likely to wear masks, and and conservative right, people are less like likely a, to. I'm going to fully cultural political difference. Yeah, I'm going to have to fully mm. disagree there. I think I truly think what this study actually shows us is that, um, is that there's more serial killers out there than you think. <laughs> so uh, yeah. kids and have a great Halloween get out there <laughs> trick or treat get your candy um, but listen if you see anyone anyone out there who is not your friend who is wearing a, a mask with a white face and a weird scruffed up hairdo stands about six feet seven tall and is carrying a giant kitchen knife 
and wearing, uh, typically wearing a jumpsuit. Or all that without the knife. Yes. Just any uh, clowns. Run. <laughs> just run. Any clowns at all, fucking run. Yeah. At least uh, the screen don't go mask to the is house. a. At least, a, at, least, at least a mask is, you know, shows that somebody's not callous and deceitful. That's what I'm saying. You can trust somebody in a mask. <laughs> I'm just saying trust, trust anybody that you see in a mask, regardless. <laughs> if they have a knife, they're probably just trying to defend you from some other attacker. Um, folks, listen, I, this is really funny that all this, uh, went ahead of probably one of the best conversations we've had on the podcast in a long time with a healthcare <laughs> professional who dived into the importance of using, uh, the importance and the, the value in using psychedelics, um, in a controlled uh, environment with a psychiatrist who knows the ins and outs of how that can, uh, uh how that can apply as a therapy. Um, last week or earlier this week, you've heard from our guest, Thomas Hartle, who actually, uh, was granted legal access to take and use psilocybin to treat end of life distress, and uh, <clears throat> and so this Friday today, uh, following uh, this very 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 great conversation about uh, about spiked mm. candy and serial killers yeah. without masks, one of our um, best. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking to Doctor O'Sullivan. Uh, Doctor O'Sullivan is uh, he's been around for a while. And uh, he knows the ins and outs uh, when it comes to using psychedelics uh, in a manner of, of uh, as a form of therapy. Um, and this was, uh, uh, Lauren, you're laughing because uh, uh, it sounded like a dig that he's old, but he's been practicing, uh, he's been practicing psychiatry since the 60s. So this guy, uh, although I'm not lying, he's old. It's not about that. I just mean he's been around as in he knows a Sorry, lot. Sean. I'm going to take my foot out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to say, and I, and I just want to say, listen, kids, if you're lucky, maybe in your pillowcase, if you dig deep, maybe you find some magic mushrooms or psychedelics in your pillowcase. Jesus Christ, Brian. No, 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 no. That, no, no, that is not, that is not where we are going. That is not. We've that's what you were saying. That's far too much about poisoning children with drugs today. <laughs> <laughs> could well, I also psychedelics point out are not that, poison, guys. Could I also point out that, that has anybody else noticed that Brian's new turn of phrase is, I just want to say. <laughs> uh, have we noticed that? Am I've been I the only watching one that's too much that? from. I've been watching too much of of the election coverage. People just, just step in say. over the, each other, and they go, "I just want to say, I just want to say, <laughs> right. the Green well, New Deal is a terrible idea." <laughs> uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Doctor Selwyn. Uh, we love you all. We're, we'll see you on the other side. All right. Well, we are here with Dr. Sean O'Sullivan. Um, Dr. O'Sullivan, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna let you introduce yourself uh, so that I so that I don't bungle this up. But uh, uh, before before you do, let our listeners know who you are and and what we're gonna be uh, talking about today. I just want to say how friggin' excited I am to dive back into the world of uh, using psychedelics as a form of therapy because this is something that. I find extraordinarily interesting and also um, am, am very, very for. And uh, um, I think, you know, I, I would like to say that, like, I want to I, I call myself an advocate for the use of psychedelics <laughs> in terms of, uh, in terms of, you go, Jer, in terms of being better humans. So, um, Dr. O'Sullivan, why don't you take it away and uh, let us know who you are? 
Well, I'm a, I'm a family doctor who largely practices both emergency medicine and psychedelic psychotherapy. And uh, I've been a psychotherapist for most of my 50 years in practice. And uh, um, it's only recently in the last uh, maybe seven or eight years that we've had the ability to use uh, psychedelics legally. And the psychedelic that we have used legally for the last number of years has been ketamine. And uh, ketamine is quite mm -hmm. a liable psychedelic substance if you get the right dosage for people. Its big disadvantage in terms of a therapeutic mechanism is that its action is short. It, um, it lasts about an hour. Now, um, an hour of psychedelic work is probably as much as a week of regular talk therapy. Uh, just because of the nature of how psychedelics work in the psychotherapeutic environment. Um, but my background in psychedelics was um, I, I was young enough to, or rather I'm old enough to have practiced uh, medicine in the 1960s when psychedelics were legal. And I uh, uh, graduated from uh, College of Surgeons in Ireland, in Dublin, and um, there was a professor there called Professor Ivor Brown, who was quite courageous and very forward-thinking and used LSD, and when it became banned, he used ketamine uh, in his practice, and he would... Uh, uh, so I had the opportunity of training, doing some psychedelic training in my undergraduate years, and of course it was the 1960s, so there was some extracurricular activity as well in terms of getting to know these substances <laughs> in a different way. And, um, and then I became very interested in ayahuasca and uh, got involved in the Santo Daime Church and was involved uh, for a period of time. I was the face of the uh, Santo Daime to the Canadian government in terms of trying to legalize it. Uh, it subsequently was legalized, but not by me. It was legalized by Jessica Rochester in Montreal. Um, did a fabulous job on that. Um, and then more recently now we have the, uh, I've been working with Theracil and Theracil is an advocacy organization that was formed about three years ago by um, a man called Bruce Tobin, who is a clinical psychologist. And Bruce was sort of coming to the end of his formal uh, psychotherapeutic career, his association with the University of British Columbia, etc., um, but he really saw the need, especially for dying patients, to have access to, um, uh, to psychedelic substances. And um, he began to agitate and um, get things up and running. And uh, about a year ago, Theracil was joined by its present CEO, uh, Spencer Hawkswell. And Spencer sort of took the administrative reins of um, uh, Theracil into its hands and um, we began to interact more effectively with the politicians involved. And then we made these applications for a Section 56 exemption for patients to be able to receive psilocybin. Hmm. So um, the Section 56 is, a, is a, a section within the Canadian drug laws that permits the minister or her minions to, um, uh, to give an exemption <laughs> from the regulations for the Canadian Drugs and Substances Act to use something that is um, uh, otherwise banned. And this is normally used for things like cancer drugs that have been approved in Europe or the U.S., but not here, but a patient needs them because they're dying. Sure. But they're also used for other ways, and this was the way the Santo Daime was legalized in Canada, which is an ayahuasca drinking church.
So Therosil got those uh, exemptions for initially four patients, and now I think we have eight patients with applications in, six or eight, and more coming every day. And now we've also moved to request from the government, the Canadian government, a similar exemption so that we can get psilocybin for therapists. And we begin begin to train therapists because, of course, it goes without saying that if you want to lead someone on a journey, you have to have made that journey yourself. Right, right. Mm. We had we had covered some of that uh, earlier this week when we spoke with Thomas Hartle, which is one of the uh, cancer patients who was using psychedelic therapy in terms of uh, wrapping his head around the end of life. And it was mm-hmm. a very, very fascinating conversation. Go ahead, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I came I came to I came to understand sort of the the history and some of the potential benefits of of using psychedelics, um, as therapy for, um, whether it's anxiety, depression, um, uh, anxiety around end of life, et cetera, et cetera. I came to that, um, via Michael Pollan's book, how to change your mind that was published probably two, two years ago or so. And, and, and he kind of, uh, he, he kind of laid out, you did a really, thank you so much for that, that sort of timeline, that chronological timeline of, the sixties, the banning of psychedelics in terms of how it was being used in, um, in trials and, and therapy. And then, um, and then Michael Pollan in his book sort of laid out these sort of, um, few moments in time around the early two thousands that sort of incited, um, the, 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 the reemergence of this in the conversation around, um, using it as therapy. I'm curious having, you having had the experience of practicing in the sixties, what was that like? What was the environment and the, and the sentiment practicing in that time in the sixties where you had the capacity or the ability to use these uh, substances, to use psychedelics as a form of therapy and run trials and see benefits and all these things and then have it, and then have it taken away and like what like when that line was drawn, what was the sentiment in your field um, around that? It was complete confusion and lack of understanding as to what the heck had gone down. I mean, we 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 understood that um, uh, psychedelics were abroad in the in the communities and that they were being used in a sometimes quite wanton and careless way. But so is Tylenol, and so is. Sure. Uh, opioids but all of those drugs remain on the market and 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 can be used by professionals to do studies and to and to offer treatment and so we were stunned that psychedelics seemed to be singled out for a very special treatment uh in that uh heroin could be got legally for a patient in extreme pain but lsd or psilocybin could not be had for love or money, for any reason, or to train any any psychiatrist or psychotherapist. So, the the predominant feeling was just stunned incredulity. How could this be happening? How could how could psychedelics be be banned in this way? Totally from medicine, not from the street, from medicine. And you know, as time goes on, and I have aged and uh, look back at myself uh, in those years with these eyes in this body. I'm not too sure I would have taken an awfully different stance if I was a regulator back in those days because um, 
it's it's a bit like what's happening with COVID now. You know, there's things popping up and information coming from here, there, and everywhere, but it's very confused, and nobody really knows what's going on with with uh, COVID. We will know a lot more at the end of this winter. But back in the day, there was there was wild reports. There was communes using it indiscriminately, and although there were very few disasters as a result of LSD use, there were some. And those were because people took them in the wrong circumstances or the wrong people took them or they took them in the wrong doses. And so those things got blown up. And even though they were a tiny fraction of the harms produced by alcohol or by benzodiazepines, the, they were new. They were new to the regulators. They were new to the politicians. They didn't know what was going on. And then, of course, on top of this, you had the social unrest of the Vietnam War. So I, we were stunned. We were shocked. Um, sorry. Sorry about that. Um, so we were stunned and we were shocked because we, knew we saw right. the benefits of these compounds, and particularly, as you mentioned, in hard-to-treat conditions in conditions that were difficult to treat, uh, like end-of-life distress, like addiction, stuff like that. <laughs> saw that, oh, saw that coming. Yeah. Damn. Should Keep we stop just, our recording? No, 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 no. Keep your recordings yeah. going. 20 minutes later. He was imprisoned. He was imprisoned in a, in a cell next to Charlie Manson, who no. was one of the most dangerous. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's wild. I didn't realize yeah. that. So we were, well, I was uh, just some context there. Cause we, I know we, we popped that recording on kind of mid sentence there. Well, uh, so we had some technical issues there and, 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 uh, we lost the doc for a second, but in the meantime, we were, we were just having a chat between the three of us about, um, and well, you can, I'm sure you can, uh, you can let us know. We were, we were, uh, wondering, pondering to ourselves, whether you, um, whether you were obviously familiar with Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert or whether you ever came into contact with them in your, in your early days. But we were talking about, Timothy Leary, more probably popularly known as Ramdas, um, and uh, I don't know. Maybe if you want to speak to to who who those guys are and what they did uh, back in the sixties and seventies, that would be pretty cool. So yeah, you have a typo there, Tay. Uh, Timothy Leary wasn't Ramdas; it was Richard Albert who was Ramdas. Um, oh, oh, oops, I mixed them up. Yeah, yeah. and Leary I've never met, but Ramdas I've met and hung out with on several occasions, and. Um, I mean, the the sort of the interpersonal vibes you get from someone are actually quite different than than the public persona. And uh, Leary Leary was a Pied Piper. That's what he was. He, he just uh, he lost the run of himself once the once the medications hit his brain, and he he became he became um, uh, what we call uh, an, an unresolved fourth matrix. He, he, he had these wonderful experiences for himself, and then his assumption was everyone should have them. And he went ahead and uh, right, tried, right. tried to proselytize that. Ramdas was much more uh, thoughtful about it. He, was, um, he went to India. He stayed uh, very much on a genuine spiritual quest, and he ran into uh, uh, Neem Karoli Baba, who became his guru, uh, in India, and he devoted his life really to guru worship, to bhakti worship of uh, uh, of of him, and he was a f- phenomenal teacher. R- Ramdas was a wonderful teacher. He used to say, "I he used to say I do stand up philosophy." 
And that's exactly what he did. It was like stand-up comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, 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 but he was dealing with very serious stuff, and he was one of the best teachers I ever came across. Leary, Leary's written work was always so much better than his uh, uh, his TV and and uh, and radio appearances because there was some thought gone into it. And a lot of people don't understand that prior to Leary becoming highly involved with um, uh, with psychedelics. He was actually a, a, a very well thought of researcher on personality structures. And some of his early work was on personality. Oh, and he, hmm. that's why he was in Harvard. He was in Harvard because of his, of his expertise on personality. Um, and then he, he became uh, really, I mean, e- even in the interviews when he was speaking on TV or on film, he, he was always logical and always intelligent and always making good points but he just had this penumbra of of the pied piper around him that made it somewhat difficult for serious researchers researchers to take him seriously ralph matzner ralph matzner said about about timothy leary leary is given too much credit and too much blame for the 60s the truth is somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. there. Right. Yeah. Dr. O'Sullivan, I'm, I'm curious, I'm imagining you, um, starting your journey as a medical practitioner and, um, choosing your field of interest to practice. Um, what was it about psychotherapy and the use of, uh, yeah, the use of psycho psychedelics for therapy that, that captivated your attention or inspired you to want to pursue this as, um, a career? Well, it's not true that I've had a psychedelic career. Psychedelics have really only become available to us in the last number of years, uh, ketamine longer than than psilocybin. But um, I did practice from the 1980s onward. Uh, when, when psychedelics were banned, there's a, a researcher by the name of Stanislav Graf. And if you're into psychedelics and you haven't read Graf, well, you need to go back to square one and read Graf because he's the... He's the he's the basement. He's the he's the foundation of psychedelic theory. <clears throat> and when when psychedelics were banned in the late nineteen sixties and early seventies, Graf developed a non drug means of inducing non ordinary states of consciousness in therapy, and that is called holotropic breathwork. And holotropic breathwork is a very simple right. technique. Mm-hmm. People lie down on a mat with someone sitting beside them to give them Kleenex, etc. We blow really loud music at them, like really loud, and we invite them to hyperventilate as long, as hard, and as deep as they can, and not with the same reliability and not to the same depth as psychedelics, but holotropic breathwork certainly changes consciousness. And so we practice that, we being myself and my wife, who's also a skilled therapist, uh, we practiced that from about the mid-1980s onwards until the... uh, uh, 2000s really did that fairly consistently uh, actually until what, we what, what what was it what was it about the experience though that that because you're like it, it makes sense to me when you talk about it and holotropic breath work for example being this kind of like you know similarly related <laughs> to uh, a psychedelic experience but maybe not as intense um what is it about the feeling or the sensation or that that level of experiencing consciousness that that attracted you into being interested in that well um 
I, I, I think the, the only accurate thing I can say about that is karma. I just, I just, I'm drawn to these kinds of states of mind. I have been since I was a child. A lot of people have near-death experiences, you know, where they go down the tunnel and the light opens and Aunt Martha's at the other end waiting for them. I've never had a near-death experience, but I remember coming into life. I remember taking form. I remember my soul separating from the divine and coming into, into this life. And so um, th- that, that was always there for me. And I grew up in Ireland, which is a very mystical place, and uh, the, 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 the spirit world is taken seriously, at least it was in my age. And so those kinds of things made sense to me. And then my first introduction to psychotherapy was classical Freudian psychoanalysis, but it was, it was dished up by a group that um, uh, had a very esoteric uh, spirituality about them as well. So that blend of Freudian psychoanalysis and esoteric Christianity became very, uh, that was the amalgam that I grew into psychotherapy with. So it wasn't just the nuts and bolts of the Oedipus complex. There was a whole lot else going on. And then I've had some episodes in my own life of cosmic consciousness where the whole thing just opens up into white light. So I've had those experiences and having had them, then you understand their benefit. And the benefits are legion, but the fundamental benefit is this. If you want to work on yourself, if you want to go into your, your, your mind and look at the formative things that uh, made you who you are today, and you bring up all the garbage and you, cheer, you clear it and you cry and you sweat and you throw up whatever you need to do, that's one part of doing psychotherapy and a very important part. And the part that most people think about when they're thinking of psychotherapy. But there's another side to it. What's also important is to expand consciousness, to open consciousness so that the demons that you have in you are immense when your consciousness is small. But when your consciousness is expanded, the demons are much smaller. And that's a teaching from Randas, by the way. Mm. And that is, that is, uh, that is what mm-hmm. the... Um, uh, the psychedelics did for me in the early stages. Then when I studied Groth, Groth has a whole map of the mind, a whole cartography of the mind, which is much broader and more inclusive than any of the other uh, theoretical frameworks of psychotherapy. And those, I, uh, once I studied that, then there was a whole lot more came into my, not my understanding of the value of non-ordinary states of consciousness. Uh, earlier in the week, when we talked to Thomas Hartle, um, one of the things that that we ended up discussing was about the actual process of of um, using psychedelics and the what's going on with the brain. Um, uh, we talked about the 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 slowing down or the quieting of the default mode network, and and the sort of parts of the brain that light up when when psychedelics are are taken. Um, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that, but, I, but also I, what I'm really curious to hear from you, um, is, is the importance of, of something like set and setting, what is set and setting and the importance of dosage when it comes to using psychedelics. Uh, well, for, the, the three, the three therapy. rules of psychedelics from the sixties were set, set, setting and dosage, uh, in which set was the mindset that you bring to the situation Setting is the environment in which you have the session, and dosage is obviously dosage. Now, to these 
I'll talk about these in a moment, but to these in the modern era has been added selection, set setting dosage, and skills. So selection is, first of all, psychedelics are not for everybody. And there's a, there's a, there's a certain subset of the population that they should not be used in. At least they should not be used in the kind of opportunities that I have to use psychedelics, which are in an office practice. Whether you could use psychedelics with psychotic and schizophrenic people in an enclosed setting, that's open to debate. And there have been trials about that. Then the set is the mindset, the expectation that you bring to the psychedelic session. And this is extremely important. I mean, if you have the, the sense that you're going to take, say, 300 micrograms of LSD, you're going to put on blindfolds, you're going to put on headphones, you're going to lie down, you're going to have guides on either side of you, and you're going to do an internal journey that will bring up a lot of material from the various realms of the human unconscious, that's one set of circumstances. If, on the other hand, you take 300 micrograms of LSD and you go down to the bar, you'll have a very different set of circumstances because you'll get all kinds of input coming into you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. If, you're, if you're a set, <laughs> your mindset is that you want to party, 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 and you take a, a big dose of a psychedelic and all of a sudden Lucifer manifests in front of you, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> Yeah, to, put it, to put it mildly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had a though. Though to that point, I I totally understand what you're saying there. When I was when I so Taylor and Jer, when you guys hopped off the call, um, when we were chatting with Thomas, I stayed on and asked him a few more questions, and I was asking him about um, the study from Johns Hopkins that said that there was eighty percent of people who used um, psilocybin in in this treatment uh that they had uh experienced positive results after the first time i i asked him about the other 20 percent. i said do you know if what the risks were associated do you know what the negative uh effects of of that study were and he said i he said as far as he could remember he believed that there wasn't negative effects that happened to the other 20 percent that it's just that they didn't experience positive effects after the first time. They may have, in fact, experienced positive effects um, after a second or third session. But then he, we started talking about this quote-unquote bad trip. And I, I know you're talking about Lucifer manifesting, but Thomas kind of explained to me that in, from his perception, a bad trip was actually could be the catalyst for a really important breakthrough that you make in breaking down the ego and understanding some of the, you know, scariest challenges or, or discomforts you have with, you know, certain, um, things in your own life. Like maybe when it comes to fear of death and the anxiety that you get around that, if you have a really bad trip, that's exploring that feeling in a really, you know, in a way where the ego has been removed and you're feeling the full force of that, is that potentially an opportunity to um, rewire uh, your your neural network to think of that in a different way? Is mm. there any truth to that? Am I mi mischaracterizing that at all? Or, or is a bad trip perhaps something that could be um, really beneficial for someone? Yeah. In the right uh, sentence. Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. And I, I would never use the term bad trip because there's no such thing. There is, there is, uh, if you take the 300 mics okay. of LSD and go to the bar, you're quite likely to have a bad trip. But if you, if you take 300 mics and you lie in, you, you're in a therapeutic session, 
whatever comes up is grist for the mill. That's what you work with. And if you're going into a person's unconscious and that person has trauma in the unconscious, what happens with psychedelics is that these traumas are not simply remembered. They are fully re-experienced. So uh, take, a, take a person who has been sexually abused as a child. Mm. When that person takes psychedelics, if that complex opens for them, then they will be a five-year-old or a seven-year-old. They won't be... They won't be uh, turn this off sorry about that uh they they will actually be re-experiencing the entire the entire event <laughs> that's okay. it's that's not a, it's a... not something that they will that they will just simply be remembering so they'll get the sights the mm. tastes the sounds the smell the icky feeling the sense of being penetrated all of that sort of yeah. stuff so if that happens to you in a bar that's one thing. If this happens to you with a pair of skilled, skilled facilitators beside you that, um, uh, that, that can help you work with this, then there are techniques that we said, we said um, set, setting dosage and skills. So the skills that a psychedelic psychotherapist has is ways of working through these materials, ways of, ways of working with the body, ways of working with uh, the material that comes up in the mind, all of those things can be worked with. I'll shut off that phone as well. Just one. My apologies, gentlemen. It's, a, it's the hospital trying to reach me. That's all. So, so, so I, so I, so I don't okay. use, so I don't use the term bad trip. There are challenging experiences. There are blissful experiences. You deal with them as they come up. Is is the challenging experience? almost sort of a desired outcome in a way, it, especially if you're trying to work through, you know, one of the, one of the principles of psychedelic psychotherapy is that, um, you actually don't have any plan at all for what emerges in the session. Um, you, 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 you drop the puck, you lie down, you put on the eye, eye, eye shades and you wait and see what happens. And so someone may be working on something really difficult in their, in their, outside of a psychedelic therapy session, they go into a psychedelic session and they just open up into pure bliss for six hours. Now, you wouldn't want to interrupt that to get someone back to something that happened to them when they were five or when they were 10. You would want to, because the notion, the fundamental notion of psychedelic therapy is there is in the human mind a mechanism that will, that moves towards healing, that moves towards wholeness. And that mechanism is the master when you're doing psychedelic therapy. You don't try and interfere with that. You don't try and hedge them back to your agenda. In terms of, um, I imagine when I'm, when I'm hearing you talk about somebody who, who dealt with uh, childhood trauma, I imagine that reliving that experience for them, that, that in itself sounds traumatic. What is it about the psychedelic experience when they relive that, that, allows that to be something that is, um, you know, a net positive experience after they come down from that experience, that trip. Another great question. Um, what, what, what makes it, what makes it beneficial is the ability to complete the process because most people who have been abused, they freeze and, and, and they sort of become rigid and passive and things are being done to them. 
So they are essentially the victim. What one needs to do in uh, psychedelic therapy is to fully experience that and if possible, turn it around so the aggression comes out against the abuser and there's the, the possibility of, of completing a process which has not been completed and has been frozen in time and frozen in the individual's body and mind. That's the value. Mm-hmm. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. One, yeah, so we've been, you know, uh, since we spoke with Thomas and and speaking to you, we've been talking a lot about, um, you know, like LSD and and psilocybin. Um, And I know that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, 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 from what I, from what I understand, those two psychedelics um, target a similar part in the brain, right? The 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 five um, five hydroxy tryptamine. I'm fucking that up, I'm sure, but it's like a a, su- a subgroup of of um, ser- like receptors, a receptor group in the brain that that regulates serotonin, correct? Or like a, like an like it a big boost in serotonin. And so my, mushrooms and LSD are very similar in that way. But I know that you know Brian was just talking about we were talking about trauma and I know that there's been a lot of studies being done with the use of MDMA on, on patients living with PTSD, struggling with PTSD. Um, is, is MDMA as a, as a therapeutic, is it, is it, is it similar to, to psilocybin? Like in, in terms of the way that, that it, that it works on the brain in terms of the way that it affects the patient? No, uh, MDMA is a very different compound. Um, so you're correct that, uh, that psilocybin and LSD activate the 5-HT2A receptor. So uh, 5-HT, 5-hydroxytryptamine is serotonin. And serotonin is uh, available. Right. Lots, of it, lots of it is in the brain. And it attaches to uh, different receptors in the brain. Lots of the, there's 5-HT, 1, 2, 3 receptors, and the 5-HT2A receptor is a very specific receptor. That receptor has to be stimulated by a compound for the psychedelic effect to occur. If, it, if that is not stimulated by the compound, it doesn't matter what else is stimulated, the psychedelic effect will not occur. Now, LSD and psilocybin also hit a lot of other receptors. LSD, the emperor of medicines, hits a lot more receptors than does psilocybin, and that's why it has a broader, more profound effect. It also tends to last a lot longer. MDMA, on the other hand, is a compound that uh, produces um, intense feelings of heart opening and love and affection and the ability to communicate those things. And 
it does this by actually mimicking the neurochemical environment in the brain of a baby who is breastfeeding or an individual who's just had an orgasm. So that's what MDMA does. MDMA puts you into that post-orgasmic mm. state or in the breastfeeding state, and then people are extremely open, their defenses are down, they can hear things that they need to hear from their partner, and they can say things without aggression and without anger. MDMA will be the first of the right. psychedelics to be legalized um, broadly, uh, probably in 2023. And um, it is... It oh, is wow. It is a perfect yeah. drug. It's a perfect drug for couples therapy. You think? Do you think that it? So you think it'll be it'll be legalized before um, uh, psilocybin? Well, psilocybin, we Theracil has managed to legalize psilocybin in Canada now. So, so uh, it, right, it's right. Okay, it's available. It's available for very specific populations in very specific circumstances. And our government has been really generous to us about this and, and really has looked at this. They've, the bureaucrats who have examined this with us have been thoughtful. They've been compassionate about the people who are suffering. And they've been, they've been very willing to, to break norms and allow us to use these. these and we're very grateful to them. Um, but where do you uh, think that change that that change of opinion has come from? Because you know, I, I know that we've we've struggled for so like since the '60s. It's been it's been bastardized and and demonized. Like what 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 do you think? What do you think are the major roles in that shift in the way that the that the government is now starting to to look at these these alternate forms of treatment? Just let me finish your previous question on the MDMA, and I'll come to that. MDMA, on the other hand, has been really, uh, really pushed by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. When MAPS first started, it was doing studies on cannabis, on uh, LSD, on psilocybin, on MDMA, on Ibogaine, all kinds of studies. But they realized that the one they could likely get legalization for first was MDMA, and they put all of their efforts into that for about 10 years. And the studies were done on MDMA, excellent studies by Michael Miethofer and Annie Miethofer, on the PTSD uh, problem. So that's why, they, and they're expecting approval by, uh, MAPS is expecting approval by 2023. Um, so, I'm sorry, what was your other question? I, I, I deviated, but uh, tell me your question again, Jeremy. Well, there yeah, was... no, no, it's, it's okay. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, so I, I was just curious as to your thoughts on what, oh, yes. like, why what do, do you think has caused the, the yeah. Mm -hmm. Good, good question. So. First of all, science. The scientific studies are proving that these compounds are effective, but not only are they effective, they have a really wide treatment effect. That means that they, they hit a lot of people who are right. suffering from these conditions. And also that they are effective in conditions that are, we have no effective treatments for otherwise. Uh, the PTSD, treatment-resistant depression, addictions, they do not respond very well to the normal pharmacology that's out there in, in the, in the farm, big pharma world. But they do respond to uh, psychedelics. And so the science has shown, the studies have done, studies have shown these people get effects, they get a big treatment effect, and, and, and they need one dose of psilocybin, and they're good for 6, 12, 24 months. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Is mm -hmm. there is there any, now, that... that, that I, I watched um, 
you know, they, Michael Pollan touches on this in his book and, and, and Paul Stan in that documentary, fantastic uh, fun guy that we watched the other day. Mm. Um, they touched on it in that documentary as well was, um, the, 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 some like pushback that you, that comes from, that comes from pharmaceutical companies in the way that, or maybe some of the bureaucratic, um, hurdles that psychedelics have to get over in terms of being treated is that like you just mentioned, they take one dose or two or three, like very, these very, mm. this very effective, uh, treatment that doesn't require an ongoing subscription, um, prescription that you take, you know, multiple times daily for the next year or the next or the rest of your life, you know, God forbid it is, is such the case with, with, with so many drugs. Do you see that? Do you see that as a, as a reality in, in, um, in your, in your work? Do you see that as being something that is a hurdle to get over the fact that it is so effective? It's almost, um, intimidating for, um, for companies that might be trying to produce for companies or, or organizations or governments that are, you know, that are, are, are benefiting from, from things being taken forever versus something that's so effective, like, um, like a, like a psychedelic experience. Yes. <laughs> plain and, plain yeah. and simple. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, take ketamine. Take ketamine. Ketamine is an example of this. Ketamine, like many molecules, has a right hand and a left side and a left-handed side to it. The molecule is constructed, so it has a right and a left hand. Um, when we use ketamine as an anesthetic or as a sedating agent in the emergency department, if we want to put a bone back in place or someone's cut their tongue and we have to put them sort of semi-groggy. Um, we use ketamine in, its, in, in both forms. It comes in a bottle and it's got both the right and the left-hand molecule in it. So um, I believe it's Johnson & Johnson have taken just the left hand of it, put that into a nasal spray, and have called it Spravato, and they're selling that for mm -hmm. approximately $500 a treatment, as opposed to a squirt of ketamine in someone's nose or under the tongue costs $1.25. It's unbelievable. <clears throat> and, wow. th and, this thing, and this thing got approval, and not only did it get approval, but there is currently some pushback from uh, various regulatory bodies about physicians and psychiatrists using ketamine in their office to treat depression. So who knows? But yes, it's a it's a big problem. I'm also I'm also curious about the how stigma with the general public affects um, whether or not people are willing to take these treatments. And I and I think of of specifically of your example of MDMA for couples therapy. Um, I know that I know people in my life that are like, oh, I like I like the idea of what I hear. Uh, an experience of of taking psilocybin and mushrooms, what that could do for me, but I'm I just don't want to alter my state of mind. I'm I don't want to. I'm me now, and I'm happy with me and who I am. I don't want to take something that's going to change the way that I think about things or or um, make me feel different than I feel now. What about that? Like, what do you say to that? I say fine. Don't change your mind. What else can you say? I mean, there could be. There could <laughs> It could be very good reasons for someone not wanting to open the depths of their mind, and they may not be aware of them, and you certainly aren't. 
but they could have some intuition or some notion or something coming into their dream life that there's something in there that they do not wish to open. Um, they can read Michael Pollan's book, which is a superb book. Uh, they can read up on other compounds, read Groth's work, uh, and then make their own decisions. But the last thing in the world you want to do is strongly encourage someone to take a psychedelic who doesn't want to take it. That would not be doing them a service. Um, before we come up to time here, there's one more thing that I want to I want to bring up. Um, and you you would, you would we've kind of touched on it a couple of times here, but not not really gone into it. Speaking about how you know. Um, the science is basically showing that this this works. Um, I uh, one thing that I'm I'm really curious to know is like what what is the what what is the science behind the. So okay, so personally myself, I've 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 gone down the path of using psychedelics for for my own personal growth, whether that be LSD, psilocybin, or or more intensely five meo DMT. And and with each one of those experiences, there has come a there has come with it this very um, spiritual or mystical experience, right? Especially with the five meo DMT. Like I came out of that experience, and I and I I, I, I thought, wow, I I am I saw and experienced something that has completely altered what I what I believe in when it comes to whatever exists after death. Um, and so it, it's making me think about these studies that are taking place at Johns Hopkins or maps. Um, and you know, these very like science backed studies on, on this, these compounds that are doing so much for people, but what is the, what is the science behind the, behind the, the mystical experiences? What is the, what is the science behind the, the, the spiritual or religious experiences that so many people seem to have in common when they go down these roads? Mm-hmm. Just before I answer that question, have you read The Tryptamon Palace by James Orock? No, I have not. Uh, he's, he's a gentleman who has uh, done more than anybody else to uh, popularize 5-MeO-DMT, and the point is he just recently died in a hang glider accident. Uh, he, was, he was a gentleman who liked to combine psychedelics and uh, um, those wings that you put on and jump off cliffs. He's just died in one of those accidents. Um, so, oh, wow. Um, that, is, that does not sound like a good mix. Um, so uh, what happens in the brain? Is that what you're asking me with these, with these compounds? Because 5-MeO-DMT and uh, psychedelics. <laughs> The psychedelics are quite different. Well, I, I guess less less so what happens in the brain, but more more so about like the you know are, are these are these sorts of exp- yeah are these sorts of spiritual experiences like um you know the the fact that the the fact that patients um like with the five meo DMT it seems like a lot of people have a very similar experience. And so when, when coming out and like trying to express that to say a therapist or, or to say, you know, a a group of scientists that are studying the effects of these drugs, is there like, are these things being, maybe this is a really dumb question, but like, are these, are these experiences being jotted down and, and explored or looked into as to why, why 
so many of these experiences are so similar to one another. Like why there's this recurring sort of, um, yeah, this recurring experience between so many different people that, that are, that are, uh, that are utilizing these compounds for good. Well, I think, I think that's, uh, um, an easier question to answer for five MEO DMT, because as you say, the experience is quite similar. Uh, a lot of hundred people have, mm. uh, take, uh, vape five to 10 milligrams of five uh, MEO DMT that have a somewhat similar, uh, experience. Um, whereas with the psychedelics, the experience, the classical psychedelics, LSD and psilocybin, the experiences are much broader and the, the range of the range of things that can happen. There can be things from biography. They can be things from your time in the womb. They can be things from your karma and the transpersonal stuff. Five MEO DMT seems to, uh, open a channel that, takes people directly to the divine. Uh, the spiritual experiences can happen with any psychedelic, but they're more likely to happen with 5-MeO-DMT. It is not understood how that brings that about. But I think when you're, when you're evaluating those kinds of experiences, what is important is to understand that these kinds of experiences have been described in the world's spiritual literature for thousands of years, long before people took 5-MeO-DMT or psilocybin or LSD. Now, an argument could be made mm -hmm. that those ancient sages were chewing mushrooms or ayahuasca or something similar, and they probably were to some extent. But there's no doubt that there, there are spiritual traditions that don't use any drugs at all who can access all of those states just by meditation, just by meditation and yoga practices and spiritual disciplines. They can open up into this exact same spiritual environments that you can with LSD. So what's happening here? What's going on here? Well, what's happening here is that those realms are present and those realms are real and those realms are available to humanity by whatever means you wish to use to get there. Whether you want to spend 50 years on a meditation mat, breathing in and out, or whether you want to drop 300 mics of acid. Those are, the, those are your choices. And obviously in the modern world, most people wouldn't go for the 300 mics. And I also think that if, if, we, if we do want to pull this human race back from the precipitous disaster it's heading towards, there does need to be some kind of massive increase in awareness uh, on humanity's part. Either that or the pain gets so great that we'll have to do something. But for that, this to me is one of the biggest benefits of, of these compounds being available broadly to people and people can use them. So the spiritual, the spiritual dimensions, when you get into the spiritual dimensions, they're just as broad as your unconscious. And the kinds of things that can happen out there are just as detailed and just as varied as what happens when you look into your unconscious. It's just the method that you use to get out there is different and shorter when you use them. But the experience that people have when they have spiritual experiences on psychedelics are every bit as genuine and every bit as powerful and Ooh. every bit as life-changing as people who sit on the meditation mat for 50 years. Those spaces, those spiritual dimensions of human experience are there, they're real, and they're available. And there's more than one way to get there. Mm. Yeah. Well, Dr. O'Sullivan, I got to say, this has been um, just a real, a real honor to be, to be able to sit down and, and uh, have some of your time today to, to talk to you about the work that you've been doing and uh, the importance of psychedelics and the future, uh, fingers crossed, of psychedelics in in uh, 
uh, being used as a therapy for for the people who need it um it just yeah this is like this is one of those conversations that gets me just real excited so uh thank you so much for that and uh it really means a lot my pleasure my pleasure Tremendous, tremendous, tremendous conversation there. That was a it was a, big it, league. It, it was actually a tremendous conversation, and it did it did feel big league. Uh, again, Doctor Sullivan is uh, he is uh, just a treat, and I feel like I learned a lot from him. And again, I hope like I I really fucking love this week because, um, you know, the especially in the last like two or three years. Um, my, my views and, and like my worldview on, on what psychedelics can do for someone has like, has really shifted, um, Mm -hmm. and not shifted rather like evolved. Like it's become, it's become something that I've, I've actually turned to quite, quite a bit for my own personal growth and like to, I just get, I'm really fucking excited about the future of I'm excited about what the future holds for this, Mm -hmm. these, these, these compounds that exist that like eventually we can get our hands on to use in a way that's, um, that's, that I think is really only going to do, Mm. is going to do so much good for, for like, just for our entire existence. You know what I mean? Like sometimes I, sometimes I wake up and I just have this feeling of like, it's futile, you know, the world, there's like, like we're in, we're in this fucked up weird place and it's not going to get better. And like a really sort of uh, nihilistic view of things. And then, and then talking to someone like Dr. Sullivan or talking to someone like Thomas Hartle makes me kind of step back and go, wait a minute. Like there's things that exist out there that can, that can generate such deep healing and such like mm-hmm. immense love. And I just, I don't know. I feel like it, it really makes me feel hopeful. Man, Thomas's think, story was um, like so, so, so well represented that too, especially because, you know, he, he didn't, he, he, he had not tried drugs recreationally until he mm-hmm. started his psilocybin treatment. So yeah. to have uh, Dr. O'Sullivan come on and provide a lot of like context and insights from a scientific mm-hmm. perspective around that and the history, um, it was, mm-hmm. it's yeah. fucking awesome. Um, I, I think that, uh, I think that, uh, I think that the coolest, I think that one of the coolest things that's, that I take out of this conversation is that we are having a conversation about something and about a, a treatment and a therapy that is going nowhere, but in the right direction. Mm. And we are going to be able to look back years from now when, when, so much of this so much of this treatment is substantiated into like concrete evidence of like of what you said jerry like deep healing being able to be an effective non-harmful way of helping people through um you know a number of different um, yeah you like uh, you challenges that they're facing in their life and we're going to be able to look back and look at this conversation and say that we we were in some small way a part of of getting the idea out there mm. that this is that this is um a needed change that's going to come and and i think that's uh that feels pretty cool yeah 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and there was something that Dr. O'Sullivan said that uh, during uh, when I spoke to him before you guys, uh, before you guys did before the recording, um, that was really interesting. He was saying that, um, you know, the research that was done on psychedelics in the '60s and stuff, obviously. Um, the the scientific standards weren't the same then compared to now in terms mm. of like conducting scientific studies but one thing that he that surprised uh, both him and me to hear is that um in more in modern trials the same results have been replicated yeah yeah as mm-hmm. like what as what was done in the 60s so i thought that was really yeah. interesting it was awesome to hear the That's historical background of of reasons why substances like psychedelics like mm. cannabis you know, are, are so demonized and stigmatized, like, and politicized, man. Yeah, yeah man. Come on, <laughs> yeah, man. 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 Um, uh, well, we hope you enjoyed that. And, uh, as much as we did and listen, folks, that's it. That's it for this week. Uh, again, kiddos get out there, trick or treat, trust everyone wearing a mask and eat all those laxative razor blades. Uh, we love you. We hope you have a very spooky <laughs> Halloween. And uh, and if you liked this episode and you like the past episodes, uh, well, guess what? There's going to be an episode coming out on Monday and the following Friday after that. And we repeat that over and over and over again. Um, but if you want more of that, you can go to uh, Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and uh, give us a little follow on there. At Sickboy Podcast is our handle. And we're always posting interesting and fun shit. Mm-hmm. And if you have any questions or you have any comments um, that uh, that you want to send our way, um, or if you want to be on the show and apply to be on the show, you can go to sickboypodcast.com slash contact. Um, and if you've got any cool stories, uh, we've been we've taken to um, reading some some emails that are getting sent in. We've had some stories sent our way. Um, about people's personal journeys with illness or whether it's, um, you know, a new perspective that they've gained from listening to the show or something cool like that. Um, we've been, we've been reading those on the show. So if you've got anything like that, you can send those to letters at sickboypodcast.com. Do it up. And as is tradition for the podcast, I shall tell you about the people involved with creating it. The show is co-produced as by is Lauren tradition. Sankey. Lauren Sankey, while Taylor doesn't interrupt me, Taylor McGilvery is another co-producer, Jeremy Saunders, and myself, Brian Stever. Um, I also want to thank my mom for helping uh, me to get to where I am today. And also, I have a twin brother named Dennis Stever, who has played a big role of how I got here in my life. Um, maybe we can hear more from Taylor, Lauren, and Jeremy on another episode. Yeah, well, uh, Thanksgiving's come and gone, so... Not in the US. Well, American Thanksgiving is coming up. And uh, speaking of being thankful, I'm super thankful for Jeff Lonis, who is the manager of this show and also just really helps us, you know, stay on top of everything, make things happen. He's an all around uh, excellent human being. And uh, Jeremy Saunders did the sound design for this episode. Um, And also, Rich O'Coin is the reason why this episode might get pulled from YouTube. Uh, because he did the music and even though YouTube, he's cool with it he's cool with it but youtube seems to be like dude there's a copyright claim anyway yeah we gotta we gotta get that figured out gonna, uh, okay that is it for this week i'm brian i'm taylor i'm lauren and i'm jeremy and this is sick boy
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.